really helpful to open it to the book of Job so you can follow along. <coughs> this book of Job is, is such a great story and I think the question at the heart of the book of Job is will a man or a woman for that matter serve God for nothing? For nothing? Will a man serve God for nothing? Is it right to trust God in a world of pain and suffering? Is it possible uh, to worship God in the darkness? That's the questions at the heart of the book of, of Job. And like I said, we're going to be going through this book over the next, well, probably until Christmas at least, and probably uh, beyond. And it grapples with some really big questions. Questions of who God is, questions of how he rules his world, questions about suffering and pain, uh, and what is the world all about. This book of Job is quite a long book. Uh, it starts with a story. We read the first part of the story, the narrative of Job's life. We come back to that right at the end. And in the middle, there's a big chunk uh, of conversations between Job and his friends. And they really unpack uh, the truths behind what's happening. Lots of it is Hebrew poetry. Uh, and we're not going to go all the way through the book chapter by chapter. Uh, but it is a fantastic book. I'm still trying to find Job. I'm sure most of you have found it by now. But I'm still trying to find the beginning. There we go. Job chapter 1. The, the book starts with an introduction. Uh, an introduction to this man, Job. Um, we're just going to start where the book starts uh, with an introduction to Job. Who is jo- who is this man, Job? We're not told anything about his family. Usually in the Bible, when someone gets an introduction, they're introduced as such and such a body, the son of somebody else. But we're not told anything about Job's family. We are told where he lives. We're told that he lives uh, in this place, the land of Uz. Where's the land of us? Well, we're also told in verse 3 it's in the east. East of where? We're not told. And if you go to an ancient map or a modern map, you won't find this land of us marked. So, so we don't know where us is, but Job is from the land of us. When, when did he live? We're not told again. Uh, lots of people think it's around the time of the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac uh, and Jacob, so quite early. Uh, but it doesn't tell us in the introduction. <coughs> What's more of concern in the introduction is, is how, how Job lived. How did Job live? And we see clearly that Job is a, a good man. He, he's a really good man. So verse 1 says, Job was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. That was the pattern of Job's life. Blameless and upright, fearing God, turning away from evil. And in case we missed it in verse 1, it comes up twice later in the passage that Charlotte read for us. The next two times come from God's mouth. He says that Job is blameless and upright, uh, shunning evil uh, and fearing God. That, that, That description says that Job's internal life was the same as his external life. There's no, no hint of hypocrisy there. Job is the the same all the way through. 
like a stick of Blackpool rock. He's got no skeletons in the, in the, in the closet. He's just a man of integrity. And Job is a good man, not because he's perfect. No one's perfect except the Lord Jesus. But Job is a good man because he's a man of faith. He's a, he's a genuine believer. That's what we're to see from that description in verse 1. Job is a, a genuine believer. His life is marked by trusting God and a repentance. That's turning from going his own way and turning uh, to do what God wants. And that's how he continually lived. He's a, he's a good man. And then we see that Job is a, is a blessed man. He's a blessed man. What do you expect uh, in a world where there's any order? You expect good people to get blessing, don't you? If there's any order in the world, that's what you expect. And Job is a, is a, a blessed man. Look at his, his family. He's got this family, seven sons and three daughters, ten children, and they, they all get on really well. It's almost unheard of. They're having these parties, like regular parties. Oh, you come around my house this weekend and, and we'll, we'll have a party. It's not a kind, of, a kind of forced family gathering where everyone tries to bite their tongue. There's this genuine affection between the kids. It doesn't seem like Job's even there. It's a beautiful family. Any excuse to get together? And look at his wealth. He's been blessed with lots of wealth, 7,000 sheep. I think Victoria's right, a bigger farm than any farmers here. 7,000 sheep's a lot of sheep, isn't it? 3,000 camels. I'm not really sure what you do with camels. Uh, maybe you hire them out to tourists who are passing, <laughs> like a hire car. If you're £100 a week, 3,000 camels, it's not a, bad, not a bad earner, is it? 3,000 camels. 500 yoke of oxen. To plough his fields and do the work. 500 donkeys. Job is a, a rich man and he's got lots of servants. You would need lots of servants, wouldn't you? Uh, with all those animals. Everyone would have known Job. It says he's the greatest man in the East. He'd have been kind of top of the rich list uh, for his country. He's a, he's a blessed, blessed man. It's a beautiful picture, isn't it? The, the opening scene, it's, it's almost like Eden. The good man is, is the blessed man. It's, it's beautiful. Is this how God orders his world? Is this what we should expect our experience in this world to be like? If we do X, Y, Z, we will get A, B, C. Is that how it, how it works? If we honour God, if we do the right thing, he gives us what we deserved. We'll be blessed with wealth and health and a fruitful life. Is that how God orders his world? Some people open their Bibles and they teach, they teach that. If you really honour God, you will be happy and healthy and wealthy and all will be well. <coughs> Probably not many of us here subscribe to that kind of teaching. Call it the prosperity gospel. Sometimes that prosperity gospel can influence our hearts and our minds in subtle ways. We can begin to, to, to think uh, in certain areas that if we do A, B, C, we will get X, Y, Z. And as I was thinking about this, I wanted to take the example of parenting. We've just seen Job's family here, a beautiful family. 
And our ideas about parenting as an example can be shaped by this prosperity gospel. If you go into a Christian bookshop, you'll find lots of books about parenting and how to do it well. Uh, Lots of them will be filled with great advice. Great advice. Pray for your children. Pray with your children. Teach them the Bible. Be an example. Don't just focus on good outward behaviour. Focus on building character. Lots of, of great things to do with your children. But the problem comes when the books give the impression that if you do this, you will get out of it whatever your aim is, a well-rounded Christian child. Draw these straight lines between the ABC and the XYZ. When when we're tempted to draw these straight lines between what we do and what we expect from God, we can run into trouble. We're going to see they're the kind of straight lines that Job's friends draw. When we draw those, we, we fall into two errors. We either get really, really proud because, you know what, the straight lines seem to have worked for us, or we just get really, really guilty because we think, what have I done wrong? What have I done wrong? The world that we see here right at the start of, the Job, of Job is a beautiful world, but God's world at the moment just isn't that simple. And actually we see it may not even be that simple for Job. Because Job has a concern, doesn't he? Can you see his concern there in verse 5? After his uh, children have been feasting and enjoying God's good gifts, Job is kind of anxious. He's anxious because he thinks, perhaps uh, when my children have been there enjoying God's good, good gifts, maybe outwardly everything looks okay, but perhaps inside one of them has cursed God in their heart. One of them has kind of shook their fist at God and said, God, I wish you weren't God. And that's a kind of a cloud in this otherwise blue sky of Job's world. Job knows that there's something dark in the human heart. That even while someone is enjoying all of God's blessings, they will be shaking their fist at God and cursing him in their their heart. So that's introduction to Job. A good man, a blessed man, but a man with just this concern about his children. Everything's about to change in Job's world, isn't it, as we... We heard in the children's talk and in the reading, everything's about to change. This narrative unfolds in two acts. Two acts, and each act has three scenes. Can you remember doing Shakespeare at high school? Act one, scene one. Act one, scene two. It's a bit like that in Job. We have two acts, and each act has has three scenes, and they repeat each other. They're almost identical. So let's look, first of all, uh, at act one. Act 1, scene 1. Where, where is that scene set? Well, that scene's set in this heavenly council, if that's the right word for it. Verse 6. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord, and Satan was among them. There's, there's the Lord, and all the, these, these spiritual beings, angels, perhaps, I think, is the, what is meant by sons of God come to present themselves before the Lord. And among them, there's this one called Satan. In fact, it's the Satan. It's a a title. Satan means accuser. 
or, or enemy. We're not told how it is that Satan can be there standing in God's presence. But he's, he's there. He's at the heavenly council. And the Lord asks Satan a question. Where have you been? What have you been doing? And Satan's answer is a little bit evasive. You know, here, there, a bit of this, a bit of that. Been down in, in, on the earth. And the Lord says, well, if you've been down on the earth, you'll have seen my servant Job. He says, have you considered Job my servant? The Lord is asking for an explanation for Job's good life. How, how is it that this man Job worships me? How is it that he fears me so much? Ex- explain that, Satan, accuser. Well, Satan has an explanation, doesn't he? You can see it there in verse 9 and 10. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no good reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed him, work of his hands, his possessions have increased in the land. Satan's answer is, Job's only in it for the money. He he only worships you because he realises the more he worships, the more he gets. You only see him there at the weekly prayer meeting because he's, he's realised if he prays for an hour, he gets a hundred more camels. That's why, that's why Job honours you. That's what Satan accuses. But he says if that changes, if you remove this hedge of protection, if his wealth is gone, then you'll see what Job really thinks of you, Lord. Then he'll curse you to your face. Then you'll see what's really in his heart. And you can... See, there's something in Satan's logic, isn't there? While Job has all this wealth and all this blessing and all these protections, well, who's going to know the truth about Job's heart? People are still going to say, Satan's still going to say, Job only serves you because of what he gets out of it. And it's this question on which the book hinges. Is God worthy of our praise? Is God worthy of our praise? Not just because of what he gives us, but simply because of who he is. And the answer to that question can't be answered when the sun is shining. That question can only be answered in the darkness of a storm. Will a man serve God for nothing? And that question is of a supreme importance because it's a question about God's worth and God's glory. And we're going to see that that answering questions about God's worth and glory is far more important than than Job's comfort. And so in verse 12, perhaps surprisingly to us, the Lord gives Satan permission. But it's a limited permission, isn't it? He says, yes, you can stretch out your hand, you can... Take anything that Job has, but don't lay a finger on him. Satan is on a a leash. And so then Satan leaves the heavenly council. Over the last few weeks, we've been, or we've been privileged to have a glimpse into the inner workings of our government, haven't we? We've maybe seen a bit more than we wanted to see. Here in Job, we get to see how God governs his world. 
perhaps one of the most clearest insights in the whole Bible as to how God governs his world. And I don't know about you, but I find it surprising. Some people believe that there are many gods out there, many spiritual powers, all all battling it out against each other and, and one may win. At its simplest, that becomes a kind of dualism, a good versus evil, a light versus darkness. And they're, they're battling it out, uh, and ooh, one's got the upper hand, then, then the dark side has the upper hand, then the light side has the upper hand, uh, and we're not sure who will win. Sometimes Christians think about God's world like this. So when something bad happens, or, or when a Christian faces suffering, we think mate, uh, that, that, was, that was Satan, and somehow God has, has lost control. But that, doesn't, that just doesn't fit with what we see here in Job, does it? God is absolutely supreme. Satan is on a leash. He can only go as far as God allows him. The other idea about the world is that there's just one spiritual power. And when people understand that about our world and think God is that one spiritual power, they wonder how can God be good when there's so much suffering? But what we see here in Job is a little bit more subtle than that. We see that God governs his world through many supernatural but lesser spiritual powers, and some of those are evil. Some of those include the the Satan here. Those evil spiritual powers, they have real power, they have real hatred for God and for his people. What we see here is God is able to use even those evil powers for his purposes. He doesn't have fellowship or friendship with those evil powers, but he does use them in the way he governs his world. God doesn't initiate evil, but he does allow it. That's what we see here in Job. And so with God's permission, with God's permission, Satan leaves the heavenly council. And he goes back to earth with just a heart full of destruction and rage. He just wants to destroy. And he uses every inch of his leash, doesn't he, in in bringing disaster upon Job's life. As you had that reading, it's it's almost, there's no no break, is there? As soon as one uh, messenger is just about to finish his message of of doom, another another servant breaks in with, with more news of disaster. There's two kind of bands of robbers that take Job's stuff and then there's these two natural disasters and the servant says one of them even came from God it was fire from God that fell and consumed your animals and then the earthquake that the worst of the lot that flattened the house and killed all of his all of his children four pieces of devastating news that come crashing in upon Job he's financially ruined And he's lost all of his family. And then I just try to imagine this week in the life of Job. Has anyone suffered more than Job? It's beyond the imagining, isn't it? Imagine what was going through Job's mind. He thought he was God's friend. He he was a he's a believer. 
imagine the inner turmoil of what was, was going on. This could only have come from God. This couldn't have happened without God knowing. What's Job's response? Verse 20. Job got up, tore his robe and shaved his head. That's the behaviour of someone who's in deep mourning. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came into the world, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Isn't isn't that remarkable? Job knows nothing of what's been happening in heaven. The day of disaster, as far as Job concerned, was like any other day when he woke up. And yet here, at the end of this terrible day, he, he... falls on the ground and worships God. Even in the unspeakable pain, he continues to believe. He acknowledges that God has the right to be God. He has the right to give. And he's given Job lots. And he has the right to to take away. And as he does that, he proclaims to the world that it was never about the money. It was never about the gifts. It was never about the blessing. It was always about God. He praises God because of who he is for his name. He praises his name, his character. That's where Job's faith is anchored. And comes the conclusion in verse 22. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrong. Job continues to maintain his integrity. He continues to live blameless and upright. And then it all begins again in chapter (laughs) 2. That's not the conclusion. That's the end of Act 1 and we go on to Act 2. And we go through the the same three scenes again. So at the beginning of chapter 2, we're we're back in the the heavenly council. And the first three verses are word for word the same as the first heavenly council. God asks Satan for an explanation of Job's upright and blameless behaviour. An explanation as to why, even though Job has lost everything, he continues to fear God. Even though he had no reason to bring disaster upon on Job, he says, come on, Satan, explain. And Satan has another accusation. What's the accusation that Satan brings? Verse 4. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, skin for skin. All that a man has, he will give for his life. Stretch out your hand and touch his bone and his flesh and he will curse you to your face. We say something like this, don't we? As long as you've got your health, that's all that matters. That's Satan's argument. Job's still got his life, he's still got his health. Of course he's going to keep worshipping you, but if you take that away, then you will see... What's in his heart? And then I think probably verse 6 of chapter 2 is the most surprising verse in, in the passage that we read. God gives Satan more permission. You would think, wouldn't you, uh, looking at Job, he, he's lost everything. All of his children, all of his wealth, he's bankrupt. And, and God allows Satan to afflict Job's body. The question 
of whether God is worthy. The question of God's glory is a big question to answer. It seems as Satan leaves the heavenly council, is verse 7 and 8, he just cannot wait to unleash more disaster upon Job. And if the, the, the first episode was, uh, was kind of planned by Satan to, to unleash maximum disaster, this, this second episode is planned to unleash <coughs> maximum pain. Job feels maximum pain in his body. He has sores from the top of his head to the tip of his toes. The only thing he can do to get relief is find some pot and glass and scratch himself. And he sits there in the ash heap, the rubbish tip. The greatest man in the East. How does Job respond? Well, before Job gets a chance to respond, we get a new voice. A new voice, a break in the symmetry with Act 1. His voice is his wife. This is the only time we read about Job's wife in the, in the whole book. Job says, Job's wife says to Job, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Just curse God and die. Those words sound like they come right from the lips of Satan, don't they? That's exactly what Satan wants. Here it's as though Job's wife is, is left there just to be the mouthpiece of, of, of Satan's words. Job's nearest and dearest. What does, what does Job do? He replies, you're talking like a foolish woman. He recognises those words for what they are. He doesn't call his wife a fool. He just says she's talking like a foolish woman. If we go through the book, we're going to find out that wisdom, wisdom is to fear God and to shun evil. We get to that in chapter 28. And here, Job's wife's words are foolish because she's calling him not to fear God, to curse God and to embrace death. Job explains, shall we accept good from God's hand and not evil? In all this, Job did not sin. It's kind of echoes of the Garden of Eden here, I think. Again, uh, the man and his wife, the wife passing on the words, the temptation of Satan. Adam, he's there in a perfect garden. Job's there, sat on the ash heap. Even in all of this pain, Job recognises those words for what they are. He rejects them. And he holds fast to God. That's the story of Job, and it's that story that we're going to really be in for the next 11 or 12 weeks, uh, and it's a great story. I just want to make some observations as we close, really by way of application. <coughs> First one is Jesus and Job. These opening scenes are pretty extreme, aren't they? Job's greatness is extreme. His goodness is extreme. His kind of demise is extreme. His suffering is extreme. Far more extreme than any of we have experienced. He loses everything just in a few days. And in a sense, our experience is not really like Job's. 
That's because Job's is a, is a shadow of one that is to come. One who's going to be far greater than Job. <laughs> one who's going to be plunged far lower than Job. One who's going to suffer much more than Job. And we can really only understand this Job story in the light of Jesus. Jesus, he's sinless, not just blameless. He's not just a great man, he's, he's the God-man. didn't just have lots of camels and sheep and oxen. He, he, he shared his father's glory in all eternity past. And yet he, he willingly came down, humbled himself to be born as a man, to go all the way to the cross. Job suffered, didn't he? But did you notice God spared his life? But Jesus, he died. His is the greatest humiliation, the most extreme obedience. And at his resurrection, we see a glorious vindication. It's Jesus' obedience and suffering and vindication that become the grounds of our faith. And it's, it's Jesus' suffering and obedience and vindication that fully and finally squash the accuser's accusations. <laughs> Jesus reveals God's glory. He reveals that God is worthy of all praise. Satan says that man will give everything that he has in exchange for his life. But Jesus says that's not true. And he goes to the cross in obedience of his father. And so as we go through, we're going to see that Job is a shadow of Jesus. And Jesus is the one who's ultimately triumphed over Satan. So that's Job and Jesus. Job and the believer. Job is also an example to us. If we're a Christian, we are, we are like Job. We're, we're believers. We have come to put our trust in, in God, to fear him and, and turn from evil. And we live in a world full of trials and and sorrows, not as extreme maybe as, as Job's, but they're there nonetheless. And also Peter reminds us when he writes his letter that the devil is still prowling around. Satan is still prowling around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Someone to destroy and swallow up. Peter says, resist him, firm in your faith. Yes, Satan is on a lead, but he's not, he's not a pussycat. He hates God's glory and he hates God's people. Remember what Jesus said uh, to Peter. He said, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat. I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you return, you, you strengthen your brothers. And as we look at Job and we think of Job the believer and we think of ourselves as believers, we see two things. The first is that to curse God is clearly sin. To curse God is sin. When, when hard times come, and hard times will come, to shake our fist at God and say, I wish God was not God. I wish God was not like he is. That's sin. It's not the unforgivable sin, but it's sin. If when difficult times come, we, we decide, if that's what God is like, I want nothing to do with him. I was chatting to someone a few weeks ago. He, he was a man who used to trust God. 
He studied theology. I think he spent some time as a minister. And he reached a point in life where his wife became unwell, really unwell. He decided, if God has allowed this, I don't want anything to do with him. There must be no God. In our pain, we must not question God's right to be God. That doesn't mean we keep our mouths shut. We're going to see Job has a lot to say. He pours out his pain to God. He asks questions why. He grapples with his sorrow. But to curse God is his sin. The other lesson we see, uh, which is a glorious encouragement that we learn from Job, that faith is possible. Faith is possible even in the darkest times. Satan prowls and painful trials come. But faith in God is possible. And if we're going to maintain faith in God, we can't just be trusting God for what he gives us. Our faith must be anchored in his person. We must know God. We must be sure of his character. It cannot be based on how we feel. It cannot be based on circumstances. Our faith cannot really be placed in other people. Our faith must be in God and his unchanging character. That's why we come to church each week, isn't it? That's why it's so important to gather together and encourage each other and remind each other of who God is. He's worthy of our praise, even when life is at its darkest. Knowing God is indispensable for a faith that lasts. I'm going to pray and then we're going to sing our our final song. Let me pray.